Welcome to Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. this morning. Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here. If maybe you're new with us or I haven't had a chance to meet you, uh, glad you're here. Um, and then we're going to just jump right into it this morning, all right? You're okay if we do that, right? Yeah? Okay, awesome. Because here's why. Uh, we've been doing this series in the book of Acts, and we've been doing it for a while. We took a break for a little bit. We're back to it now. And the reason that I just want to jump into it is we have a very long passage of Scripture today that we're going to work through. Uh, It's the entirety of chapter 12, all right? Um, And the reason that we decided to have this entire passage all in one chunk is because it it tells one kind of narrative story. Um, It all kind of connects together. And so uh, we felt like it was important to be able to walk through it kind of all in one shot. And so because of that, You are totally welcome to follow along in uh, your paper Bible, or if you have a digital Bible, that's great too. But I just wanted, like, full disclosure, I'm going to be hopping around a little bit, kind of focusing in on certain points, and then paraphrasing a good chunk of it as well. And we would highly recommend, I mean, go after today and read through it, and because certainly God will continue to highlight things maybe that we don't get to today. We're going to focus in on a couple specific things that I feel like God really wants us to wrestle with here this morning, but there's so much great stuff in this passage. Um, But I just wanted to kind of give you the heads up of like how that's going to go. And I'm excited to get to preach this passage today because I love, love the narrative parts of scripture. So, so if we, if we open the Bible, there's a whole bunch of different kind of styles of writing in the Bible. There's like in the later half of the New Testament, there's all the epistles, which is the apostles and the pastors kind of writing to these churches with commands and directives and advice on how to pursue Jesus and how to live with each other. And that's helpful and that's good. None of these are bad. It's all the Bible. It's all good. And then there's like poetry writing and there's prophetic writing and there's historical writing. And there's, there's a lot of the scripture is, is narrative. And I love narrative because it just, it brings about this like humanity that we all experience because what we're doing is we're watching people in real time trying to walk through what it means to put God first and to listen to him and to follow in his footsteps. And it's messy and people are dumb and, and people are amazing. And we look at that and we're like, man, I can totally see myself in in this story. And what it actually, I think, can do can, can help us uh, ignite our passion and our desire to follow Jesus more closely as well. But one of the other reasons I love narrative is because it's one of the ways that I find uh, kind of breaks this stereotype that oftentimes is put on the Bible that it's kind of this old, boring, dusty book that's kind of hard to really get anything out of. And at times, maybe that's a pinch merited. There's language, there's context, there's things that are hard to work through in scripture. But especially when it comes to narrative stuff, if that's what we think when we're reading it, it's on us. Because this is an incredible, incredible story that unveils. And it's funny, and it's ridiculous, and it's awesome, and it's all of it. If we would just take the time to read it, and to read it well, in my opinion. So often it's easy for me to read scripture and maybe you found yourself in this situation as well where you read it and it's kind of like, and so and so went here and then they went here and thus they went there and they had this like straight look on their face the entire time. What human being ever walks through life like that? I don't think that these people did 
either. So there's actually, uh, the, the passage we're gonna look at today is quite the roller coaster of emotions and people and situations. And so what I wanna do to start is I kinda wanna give you kind of the big picture of like what's happening in this passage of scripture. And then we will go back, we will look at the things I believe God has highlighted for us to work through today. So you may remember last week, uh, Matt taught on chapter 11, and uh, what we saw is that the church is exploding all over the place. There's this Gentile community in Antioch, you might remember that, the apostles didn't even know anything about. And like the church in Antioch, there's all these other churches, all these other groups of believers of Jesus that are just popping up all over the place. And uh, so we got to see kind of like how far out the gospel is going with that. But what we get to look at today is we're actually coming back home to kind of where all this began in the city of Jerusalem. The reason I wanted to mention that is because it is becoming clear to everyone that the church is gaining momentum. It's going, it's reaching people it's never reached before. And as is always the pattern with the church in scripture and throughout human history, when the church really, really, really acts like the church, the powers that be that are kind of backed by the spiritual powers in this world do not like it. It's a, it's a proven fact that when the church is gaining momentum, the powers that be are not super game for it. And in the New Testament, in the book of Acts in particular, that comes in the form of persecution. And so we've seen persecution pop up before as we've read through Acts, and today we're going to see kind of the dial turned up a little bit on persecution specifically in Jerusalem. The reason that this is a big deal is because a lot of the leadership of the church still was living, staying, ministering, doing their thing in Jerusalem. So some of the things that are gonna happen here, um, they're, they're kind of big deals. And so right at, the, right at the outset, in verse one of chapter 12, it says this, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. All right, let's pause here for just a second. We need to talk about Herod for a little bit. Um, Herod is a name that might sound a little bit familiar to you, um, especially if you've been around the church because uh, you might have heard him attached to the stories we tell around Christmas time. Um, I don't know if, if you guys remember that there was Herod, he was a king back when Jesus was born and his name was, uh, he was referred to as Herod the Great. That is not the same guy that we're talking about here, just to clarify. This guy's name was Herod Agrippa I. Herod the Great and Herod Agrippa I were kind of these like dummy dictators that were set up. That's the best way I can think of to describe them. The Roman Empire was in charge, but they would kind of get these people that they could control pretty well and say, hey, you can be king over this area, make sure you get your taxes in, make sure to squash any rebellions, and then you can kind of do what you want. You can manipulate and you can use your power to do the things that you wanna do. And oftentimes that kind of position attracts pretty ruthless people, and both Herods are good examples of that. You might remember Herod the Great uh, tried to pull the wool over the, uh, the wise men's eyes in the Christmas story. And he tried to trick them into telling him where the baby Jesus was so that he could kill him, so that he couldn't uh, be in competition with him. Um, and that didn't really work out so well for him. And so he went like full scorched earth and he had every child underneath two, uh, under, under the age of two killed. And so he was pretty ruthless, but what we find in this passage and through Herod Agrippa's life is that he kind of followed in his, what would be grandfather's footsteps um, and doing the same kind of thing. But as I read up on Herod Agrippa I, this picture began to become really, really clear to me. Herod Agrippa I 
is like the most stereotypical picture of a lifelong politician that you could possibly imagine. Like, I don't care what side of the aisle you land on or what values you, you hold to. We all have that picture in our head of the person who is the lifelong politician. And I don't, it's like the only thing that unites like the two sides, right? We all hate those people, right? They don't understand. They've been playing this game forever. They don't stand for anything. It's all just this political game. Herod Agrippa I was exactly that person. When he was young, his parents sent him off to Rome. They said, hey, rub shoulders with the with the important people, which he did. As I looked more into his life, he, he had kind of this like trust fund kid, like frat boy vibe. Like he was like constantly in trouble. He was getting bailed out of jail all the time. He was doing sketchy things to try to gain power and influence and favor with people. And to his credit, he played the political game well and he secured a pretty sweet gig kind of ruling over this area that we're talking about today. And the way that he did that was he super endeared himself to the religious leaders in the nation of Israel. There's a couple instances where he, he convinced another leader, oh, don't put a statue of yourself in the temple. The Jewish people will be upset about that. And the Jews said, oh, thank you, Herod. That's so nice of you. He would read the Mosaic law that was important to the, to the Jewish religious system. He would read it to them and they would, they would love that. And so what we begin to see is this pattern of him just trying to please his constituents. That's basically his whole deal, which leads him to do what we're about to read here. And I won't lie, it almost makes it worse. Like it'd be one thing if this guy genuinely hated Jesus or genuinely hated Christians, but instead we get the picture here that he just was trying to keep the Jewish people happy. That's all he was trying to do. And he does some pretty horrible things to make sure that that happens. We read about what he did in verse two. All we get is this. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. Uh, everybody agrees, all historians agree that when you get killed with the sword in scripture like that, it means that, that he was beheaded. So just like there's a few Herods in the Bible, there's also a handful of Jameses in the Bible. So we just need to make sure we know which one we're talking about here. This is not... James, the brother, the half-brother of Jesus. But this is the James that we see a lot in the Gospels. This is the James that was kind of in Jesus's inner circle. Like if you have read the Gospels, we'll see oftentimes many examples of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John and kind of taking them off to the side to tell them something important. They were there with him in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration where uh, Jesus kind of revealed his full godness to them. This was one of Jesus's literal best friends. And all we get, all we know here is that he was scooped up by Herod and he was beheaded. And the Jews loved it. They were all over it. It, it made them all the more like pro-Herod. And when Herod realized that they were so nutty about what he had done, rounding up this Christian leader, this was the first apostle, the first disciple of Jesus to be martyred for following Jesus. When he realized how good that went over, he was like, oh man, if they love that I scooped up and killed James, man, they're gonna, they're gonna lose their minds when I go get like the big dog, like the biggest fish, fish I, we could ever fry, the, the rock that this whole thing is built on. If I get Peter and I kill Peter, I am set for life. And so he does. He finds Peter and he arrests him and he puts him in jail. Now it appears that between James's arrest and execution is a very short period of time. And what we get to see in Peter's situation is that there's a little bit of a lag. 
He arrested him, but he didn't want to execute him right away, and it was because it was the Passover festival. So instead, Herod puts him in prison and waits until the festival is over just to make sure he's not stepping on any cultural toes there. And uh, now Herod certainly would have heard about Peter, would have heard about all that Peter was doing, which means he probably also heard that Peter's a little bit slippery to try to keep in prison. Peter had been, he had been arrested and released at least two times that we know of before this ever came around. And so Herod's response is to do massive overkill. Scripture tells us that he, he assigns four squads of, of guards to guard Peter. That's 16 soldiers to guard a guy whose only combat experience is he happened to get a good hit and cut a guy's ear off one time. That's like all Peter had under his belt as far as like military expertise. But Herod, for whatever reason, decided we need to make sure this guy does not get away. So he got 16 people to guard him. Passover happens, and we get to the night before Peter was going to be tried and executed. And the night before Peter seemingly would certainly die Here's what we find Peter doing. In verse six, it says, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. I love this. Peter, who Jesus told him he would die. Now, Jesus said it would when, when he was old, but let's be real, we all feel old no matter where we are, right? Peter, the night before, it seems like he would certainly be executed. Where do we find him? Just zonked out, like at rest, asleep. It reminds me so much of the story in the Gospels where they're on the boat. You know the story? And there's, there's the storm, and all the disciples are freaking out, and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, help us. And where do they find him doing? Taking a nap. So Peter's literally like apprenticing Jesus, not only in life, but also apparently in sleep habits. So God seems to care about a good night's rest, absolutely. Peter was zonked out, he was at rest, but he was bound and was sleeping between two soldiers. And here's what happens. An angel shows up in the cell, just appears in the cell. A bright light appears is what scripture tells us. Apparently the light wasn't enough to wake Peter up or the soldiers up. So what we, I, I think this is so funny. What the angel does is it, he, he literally hits Peter in the side. Scripture says he struck him. He's like, hey, get up. He tells him, get some clothes on, get your shoes on, get your cloak on. We got places to be. Let's go. And Peter kind of like wakes up and realizes what is happening. But something that scripture tells us is he didn't think it was actually happening. He thought it was a dream or he thought it was a vision. Um, we had seen Peter already having a vision a few chapters ago where, where God kind of opened up his eyes that the gospel is for all people. So Peter just thought, hey, this is a dream, this is a vision, God's trying to communicate something to me, but he did not realize that he actually was getting up and escaping prison. And so here's what happens. The angel leads him out uh, away from the soldiers through the prison door. They get to the very last door in the prison where they'll be going out into the city and the door just swings open on its own accord. They go down a couple streets, and scripture says the angel disappeared. It immediately left him. When this happens, Peter, scripture says, came to himself and he said, now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people were expecting. So he kind of snaps to and he's like, oh my goodness, this was real, I'm free, now what do I do? So he runs down a couple streets. It says when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying, praying on behalf of Peter. Now, there's, a, there's some 
debate about who exactly this is and what exactly this house was. A lot of people believe that it's the house that Jesus met with his disciples. They had their very first uh, Passover meal together, the Last Supper together. Other people would say this is also the house where um, the Holy Spirit was poured out on people on the day of Pentecost. Whatever the case, this was a known place that believers would gather to pray, to worship, and, and to be together. So it makes sense that Peter would wanna get there. And what scripture tells us is he gets there, he knocks on the door, and the servant girl named Rhoda comes to the door because somebody's knocking at it, and she hears Peter's voice. And again, I think this is so funny. She hears Peter's voice, and she gets so excited about it that she forgets to open the door and just runs back into the house to all the other people who are gathered there. And, and she's like, guys, guys, Peter is here. He's escaped from prison. He's alive. He's, he's good to go. And the believer's response to Rhoda is like, mm, you sure? That doesn't seem likely that that would happen. And I, and I love this. I love just the humanity in this. They're like, it's unlikely that Peter would be released from prison again, you know, since he already did that twice. Instead, their go-to is like, it's probably his angel. The angel is out there instead. Either way, Rhoda just continues to bug them until they all go to the door, open it, and they see Peter standing out there in the dark in the street saying like, it's about time you opened up this door. They're excited, they're loud. Scripture tells us that Peter has to like calm them down. He's like, shh. I did just escape from prison after all, okay, guys? Like, let's go inside so that we can continue to talk. They go into this house, and, they, and Peter sits him down, and he's like, this is all that happened. He told him every detail of how God delivered him from the captivity there. And then he tells them, make sure that you go and say this to the other believers. I want other people to know how God has been faithful here. And then scripture tells us that he left that place and went to another. Again, probably because it was known this was a place where believers gathered. Might have been one of the first places Herod would come look when he realized that Peter was gone. The sun rises on a new day and Herod is super mad. You know that every single one of those soldiers when they woke up from their night's sleep were like, uh-oh, we are in trouble here. And like little mini dictators always do, Herod threw a fit. That's, that's what he did. He threw a fit and had all 16 of these guys executed. Also, what lifelong politicians do is as soon as things get kind of hairy or kind of difficult or they're disappointed or they look foolish, he booked it out of town. He left Jerusalem and he went up to basically his vacation home to hang out, to lick his wounds and to deal with his frustration. So that's where we're gonna pause for right now. There's a little bit more in the story and we'll get back to it at the very end, but that's where we're gonna pause for right now. And there's a lot in here already, am I right? There are so many things we could focus in on in this passage of scripture. And there's been a lot said about this passage of scripture. I've heard lots of messages on it with all very good, very helpful points. We could point to James and, and how he went, was, was killed and, and his attitude toward that. We could. We could point to Peter in his kind of countenance during this whole ordeal. We could point to the, the fervency or the earnestness of, of prayer from the believers. We could, we could point to the believer's reaction to seeing what God was doing. There's all kinds of good, helpful things. And probably as we go back in scripture, the Holy Spirit will highlight different things for us. But as I was praying through, sitting in, meditating in this passage of scripture, I really believe the Holy Spirit did not allow me to move past this one point. And it's just kind of one point. 
I really wanted him to, if I'm being honest. It's super threatening to me. It feel, my ego says it's too obvious, but he just did not let me get past this. So I'm, I'm going to be obedient to what he said, and I'm going to trust that there's other people in the room that also need to hear this as well, because I know that I do. And the thing that he just wouldn't let me get past was this, the contrast between these kind of three main characters in this passage of scripture, in this particular situation. The contrast between James and how his story ended, Peter and how his story ended, at least in this moment in time, and how Herod's story is gonna end here in a little bit. Because when I look at this, I won't lie, I feel like it's a little unfair for James. I don't, I don't know if anybody else feels that tension. I think it's okay for us to bring our gripes to church. It's a good place to work through them. But when I read this, I'm like, this feels a little bit unfair. Like James was faithful to Jesus. He was one of his best friends. Peter was also faithful to Jesus, also one of his best friends. They were committed to the mission of the church and Peter got delivered and James gets half a sentence and dies. And that's all we get to know about him. I won't lie, that, that kind of rubs me the wrong way. Because I think this is why, and maybe other people in the room can identify with this, is even though we know Jesus and even though we trust Jesus, sometimes our thinking, I think a gentle way to say it is a little unsurrendered. Maybe a more explicit way to say it is a little bit twisted. But we still see faithfulness to Jesus as somewhat of a transactional thing. Because all of us can get behind the idea of how God decided to show up in Peter's life, right? We like that story. Like Peter was faithful to Jesus and Jesus came and freed him from captivity, got him out and sent him on to minister another day. We like that idea. What's a little bit harder of a pill to swallow is that James's faithfulness to Jesus led him to obscurity and a premature death, at least from a human perspective, right? I don't like that. I'll be honest, I don't like that. Because there's this reality in the world in which we live. I know I feel it, I bet other people in the room do as well. I think somewhat it's a human being thing. I also think it's kinda in the water in this part of the world and some of the values that, that this place is built on is that a bunch of us in here want to make sure that we are part of something that's important. Tell me I am not the only person in the room who feels that. We want to be a part of something that matters. We want to be a part of something that's important. And that can flesh out in our business ventures and how we run our family and how we engage with others in relationships. And then we super spiritualize it too and, and we apply it to our own pursuit and walking with and faithfulness to Jesus. And we'll say, if we're being faithful, then all of this stuff will be produced in our life. We'll have a legacy to leave behind. It's very important to us. But if it's the most important thing, instead of actually just straight up faithfulness, we have gone awry. And I think what we have here this morning is just an opportunity to confront some of our unsurrendered, twisted thinking on this issue. I know this has been brought up to me many, many times in my life. More than any other situation, it was uh, in our foster care stuff that we do. I know I mentioned that a lot, I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but it's like the single most transformative thing I've ever done in my life. 
in our very first placement that we had in foster care, we, had, we, we knew that God had asked us to do this. And so we, with full confidence, were saying, God, I am being faithful to what you've asked me to do. And, and then we had a very clear picture of how we thought that should end because of our faithfulness to Jesus. And it did not end anywhere close to what we thought it would. And our faith was shaken a little bit. It was like, God, you asked us to do something. We were being obedient, we were being faithful, so why did it end in such heartbreak? Why did it end so seemingly poorly right here? And I had to ask myself the question, man, if faithfulness to Jesus leads to difficulty, leads to heartache, this is scary for us, if faithfulness to Jesus leads us to no one knowing our name, us getting half a sentence in the, the grand history books that is the life of the church and being cut off before we feel like we're done, are we okay with that? If faithfulness leads to a place we didn't think it should, are we okay with that? That's a difficult question for us to ask. I think it's a necessary question for, for us to work through. Because at the end of the day, we're not after impact. We will have impact because of what the Spirit is doing in us, but that's not what we're after. We're not here to change the city, to change the world, to change the country. We are here to be faithful to Jesus, and then he will do those things. So if our part to play in it is just to fade into obscurity, we better be okay with our part that he's asked us to play with it. I think about this picture all the time that was given to me from a friend of mine who lives in Guatemala. His name's David, and he's a part of a ministry down there. And uh, they do all kinds of ministry in the country of Guatemala. And this was a number of years ago. We took a team down there. And we were kind of, it was toward the end of the trip. And it was during this time where I was really personally wrestling with like, how much validity do, do these short-term mission trips have? I was kind of struggling. Like, is this worth like the effort? Are we actually helping? Uh, I really don't wanna be one of those like North American savior nonsense stuff. I don't wanna come paint the same wall that's been painted a thousand times during the summer. Like, would it just be better for us to send a lump sum of money to these people and let them do the thing they're already doing? And so I was wrestling through that. I'm a, I err on the side of cynicism a little bit, full disclosure. So I was, I was wrestling hard through that. And uh, I asked him, I said in front of the whole team, I was like, David, is it even helpful when we come here? is this even helpful for us to be here? You have to cart us around, you have to feed us, you have to do all this stuff. Is this actually helpful? And he gave me this great picture that applied to the question, but I think also applies to a lot of other areas in life, including this one. He says, well, here's the deal. I forget the exact words he said, but something to this effect. He said, here's the deal. By yourself, none of you are that important or that impressive. And of course, these are a bunch of North American kids who have been told by everyone, every step of their life, they're the most impressive and most important. So after the initial offense had settled, where they actually could hear what he was trying to say, he said this. He said, let me, let me explain it to you. If you could look at the world and what God's doing kind of as like a radar, like on a boat. He was like, you off by yourself are just like a little ping. You in North America and Modesto, you're like one little ping. And then there's this Guatemalan mom who is faithful to Jesus up in this village in the middle of nowhere, and she's this little ping. And on our own, we don't make that much impact, and we're not that impressive. But the more of us that there are and the closer that we get together, the more clearly you can see that there's something there. And so what he was saying is like, you being here with us and us being with you is of great validity because then it helps us see what God is doing. But I think it also applies here. 
it's a beautiful picture to me of like, it doesn't devalue us as people, but it lets us know we are already included. Whatever role we are asked to play, we are already included in the most important thing that we could ever give our life to. Whether we find ourselves with huge influence and huge platform, or we literally fade into the night and no one even knows our name. We have to be okay with whatever direction God leads us. Because the reality is for every one big name that you know in the church world or Christian world, there's thousands of other people that I can't even tell you their story because I don't know who they are. Missionaries, pastors, moms, dads, kids, aunts, uncles, orphans, all over the world who have been faithful to Jesus and no one will ever know their name. Are they, is their faithfulness less because they haven't been given so much more influence and platform? Absolutely not. But I find in this part of the world, at least for me, it's really easy to try to hold on to that. And in essence, what we're doing is we are treating our faithfulness to Jesus as a transaction. And it's something we cannot, I just feel so confident, it's something we cannot allow to happen. If faithfulness to Jesus means we're delivered, awesome. If faithfulness to Jesus means we fade into obscurity, awesome because either way we were being faithful to Jesus. Now I feel like there is a need really quickly to do the flip side of this. Because I kind of assumed everyone thought like me, isn't that how we do that, right? We assume everyone thinks the exact same thing as us. But I was telling this to some students and I was kind of expressing my own fear of how like I'm terrified that I'm gonna get to the end of my life and look back and be like, none of that was worthwhile, none of it was worth it, nothing happened, there was no impact, like I'm terrified of that. And I was telling them that story and I totally expected for them to be like, yeah, us too. And it was the exact opposite experience. <laughs> they were like, dude, I do not resonate with that at all. I don't care at all about being a part of some big thing that changes everything. I wanna love Jesus well, I wanna serve Jesus well, I wanna take care of the people that are important to me, but I'm perfectly content doing my life, the things I love doing in kind of a quiet way and just dying at the end of it. I'm perfectly content with that. I'm not bagging on them, that's not wrong necessarily. But just like some of us need to be okay with our faithfulness leading us to obscurity, there might be some people in the room this morning as well that God has done the miraculous in your life and you need to share that. Maybe you're really hesitant too because that's not your deal, you don't feel qualified, you're afraid, it's awkward. But there might be some people in this room that God has done some miraculous things in your life and he has given you an opportunity to share those things with people who need to hear them, whether other believers or whether people who don't know Jesus yet. And the point is always to just be faithful to what he has asked us to do. So whether God elevates you to this huge spot, watch out, it's scary up there, seems like everybody takes a fall. Whether God is elevating you and your voice and your influence, be faithful to him. Are you okay with it? Whether God is saying to you, you, you actually are gonna decrease your platform and your influence and what you think could be your legacy, whatever that looks like, are you okay with it? That's a question we have to wrestle with. But whatever camp you find yourself in, there's one more that none of us in the room can ever allow ourselves to get into. And that's what I wanna finish the message with this morning. It's the camp that Herod finds himself in at the end of the passage. And this is quite a wild thing that goes on here. Um, Herod, after he goes 
to his beach house to lick his wounds. He deals with this little squabble between these people groups. It's simplified, but that's kind of the deal. And he kind of brokers some kind of peace between them. And scripture tells us that after he brokered this peace between them, um, he was gonna get up and kind of deliver this speech to the people who were gathered there. And scripture tells us that he put on royal robes, took his seat upon the throne and delivered a speech to them. This particular situation, we get uh, another account from a Jewish historian named Josephus, who gives us even a little more detail of what was actually going on here. Um, And long story short, Herod put on this like super glittery, silvery like outfit so that the sun would like reflect off of it so it would make him look like really, really impressive. Like the guy is like literally, like think like hairband from like the 80s. Like that's what I'm thinking that he has on. Like, like Eurovision, like a human disco ball. Like that's what's going on here. Which someone pointed out to me, I just need to say it, I know I'm over. Uh, but in between services, they're like, listen, you're being awfully judgy at Herod when you have the loudest shirt on in the entire room. And I was like... You're right. I hope my story does not end like Herod's at all, all right? (laughs) So he is like really full of himself. He's pulling out all the tricks and the crowd is eating it up. They love it. They're like, you're the best, you're the best. And they start to say something that you would never imagine coming out of the mouth of a Jewish person at that time. They said, these aren't the words of a man. These are the words of a God. You are a God. And Herod was like, maybe, He doesn't refute that. He just kind of takes the praise. And what scripture tells us is that an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. Josephus tells us that there was this instantaneous pain in his stomach. And a few days later, he died because he was literally, I'm not trying to be gross, but he was literally being eaten from the inside out by worms. So here's the deal. Faithfulness to Jesus might lead you to obscurity, and a premature death, faithfulness to Jesus might lead you to deliverance and the responsibility to, ter- to share that story. Faithfulness to ourselves will always end here. And we need to know that. Faithfulness to ourselves, saying we're God, we make the calls, we decide what's going on here. It might take a while, but it will end here. It's a cancer that will eat us from the inside out. We cannot afford to get there. And I know no one here, I don't see any glitter suits in the room, so I don't think anyone here is standing up pretending to be God, but let's not, let's not pretend like we can't connect the dots here. Us saying that our legacy or our impact is more important than actually being faithful to Jesus, that's us saying we're God. Us saying like, oh no, no, I'm not called to be a part of this thing that God's doing, so I can keep all the stuff he's doing in my life just to myself, that's still us playing God with what he's asked us to do. So we need to be very, very aware of where our faithfulness is headed. Is it to Jesus, to whatever place that he leads, or are we only being faithful to us? If that's true, we need to make a change right here and right now. This passage ends with a a word of encouragement. It says, even in all of this going on, James dying, Peter being miraculously delivered, Herod literally having worms coming out of his stomach. Even in the middle of all this craziness, one thing remains, one thing is true. Verse 24, but the word of God increased and multiplied because people were faithful to Jesus. The Christians were praying, they were seeking him, and the word of God continued to increase and continued to be multiplied. 
What we can count on is whether we die in obscurity or whether we're delivered from trial, when pe whether people stand against God and when people are faithful to him, that his words will increase and multiply in our lives, that the church will continue to grow. We need to make, we need to make sure that we are in step with where God is going. And I know it's a term that we've used over and over again, and maybe you're tired of hearing it, but really what we're getting at here is the concept of surrender. That we say, wherever you're going, God, I'm with you because you're in charge and you can be trusted. And so as we wrap up today, um, we take communion almost every week here at Crosspoint. And uh, we would invite you, if you're a believer, it's an opportunity for us to remember what Jesus has done. But I, I think we have a chance today to kind of remember it through this lens. Jesus' sacrifice uh, was so that we could be forgiven of our sins. It's also one of the most beautiful and visceral pictures of surrender that we have. Jesus, we know in the garden, he said, Father, if there's any other way to accomplish this, if this cup could pass from me, please do it. But not my will, your will be done. Jesus literally was surrendering to the will of the Father through the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood. And we have the opportunity as we remember him today to thank him for, for his forgiveness and also to model the same kind of surrender in our life, wherever he's trying to take us. So he sat down with his friends and he took out the bread and he broke it and he said, just like my body is gonna be broken, that's, that's what you're seeing right now in this bread being broken. So every time you do this, remember, remember my pattern of surrender that I'm showing you. And every time you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's eat the bread together. In the same way, he passed the cup around. He said, just like this cup is being poured out, my blood will be poured out as a ransom, as a way to pay for many, many people to be forgiven and to come into my family. He said, every time that you drink, do it in remembrance of me, remembering my sacrifice, and for us today, remembering the pattern of surrender that he's given us. Let's drink the cup together. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thank you so much for modeling every single thing you ask us to do. I'm just struck by that right now, that it can be really easy for us to act like um, you're asking us to do something that's so, so difficult, and how could he understand? But Lord, your word tells us that you understand every fear, every anxiety, every temptation that we go through to try to make a name for ourselves, or to try to make our little kingdom. You understand it all, God, and yet you've modeled a, per a perfect picture of surrender and faithfulness. And God, I pray that we would, even in our broken human attempts, that we would, we would clothe ourselves in the same things, that, that that would be our goal, is to live lives that are faithful, that, that have fidelity, that, that are loyal to you, like a bride is loyal to her groom, is faithful to her groom, just like you showed us how to do. So God, those of us in the room who are clinging so tightly to whatever impact or legacy we feel like is so important to us, Lord, would we just loosen control? Lord, for those of us in the room who are really afraid to share the miraculous things that you've done in their lives, Lord, would you give, give us boldness, give us courage to do it because you're so worth it because we wanna be faithful to you. And God, for all of us in the room, may we, may we never buy into the lie 
ever, ever buy into the lie that we can be faithful to ourselves with zero consequence. You are so much better. You are so much more worth it. We want to acknowledge that. We want to give all that we have to you as we sit in here, yes, but more importantly, as we walk out of here and go through life, putting you first and with the, the focus being true, genuine faithfulness to you. We love you, God. Your awesome name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.